Thank you, Dan and Roger Dale. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3 and verse number 11. I believe that this is our fourth message in John 3. And the reason for that is that this is such a very important uh, section of Scripture. I have those glasses. And if you haven't, if you missed any of those messages, I would highly encourage you to go back. Uh, there are two ways in, if you miss a message that you can, uh, listen on our Providence Pulpit podcast that is posted each week on our Facebook page and also by video. If you prefer by video, that's posted once a week. These are some very important messages in John chapter three. So if you missed any of them, they kind of all go together. They kind of all fit together. I'd encourage you to go back and listen or watch. But today, real briefly, I just want us to begin by thinking about what we have covered so far since we started this in verse one in this tremendous third chapter. This is kind of one section in verses 1 through 21 that we're in. And Jesus is teaching us in this section about salvation. And it all happens, as you know, in a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as you remember, comes to Jesus by night. And he is a very formidable man of his day. He was a Pharisee. That meant he had reached a very elevated status in his devotion to the Old Testament law and as well as to the rabbinic tradition of Judaism of his day. And also, remember, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, the Supreme Court of Israel. If you remember, out of the 6,000 Pharisees of Judaism, there were only 70 men who were chosen to be on the council of the Sanhedrin. Tradition says that, that Nicodemus, if you remember, was also one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. So this man was very successful. He had reached the highest levels of status and influence in all of the nation of Israel. But Nicodemus was a lost sinner, well-versed in his religion, but lost. He was outside of the kingdom of God. He was a religious hypocrite. And we're not saying anything about Nicodemus that he did not know because he comes to Jesus by night as a deeply troubled man. This is a hypocrite who has great self-awareness. He understands his hypocrisy. He is a secret sinner in Israel. 
He is a very worried individual. He has no confidence at this point when he comes to this conversation with Jesus that he has eternal life. And he has been watching Jesus who has been in and around Jerusalem right now at the Passover time. And Jesus has been doing these incredible, jaw-dropping, supernatural miracles, which Nicodemus rightly realizes nobody can do these things unless God is with him. And he tells Jesus that in our text. So Nicodemus obviously hopes that maybe this man, who obviously has some strong connection to God, can give him some kind of an answer to the deep anxiety that he currently has in his own heart. Maybe this man can tell him what else he needs to do other than what he has been doing or what he needs to stop doing in order to get in the kingdom. He needs some assurance. He needs some peace. He needs some confidence. He needs some real hope that he doesn't have as he is nearing the end of his life. And he knows he's getting close. So as he comes to Jesus, his heart then now is very open to Jesus. And Jesus, who knows everything in everybody's heart and mind, as we saw, reads him like a book. He knows his fear. He knows his anxiety. And he speaks directly to Nicodemus about entering the kingdom. And the first thing that he says to him about entering the kingdom is that it isn't something that you can do in your own power and strength. You can't make any contribution, Nicodemus, to entering into the kingdom because you have to first, before you can even see it, Jesus said, you have to first be born again. You have to be born from above. And he uses the analogy of birth very specifically to demonstrate that just as, Nicodemus, you made no contribution to your own physical birth, you make no contribution to your spiritual birth. You need God to give you spiritual life. And folks, you need to understand, that is devastating to Nicodemus when he hears this. This is turning his religion and all of his theological learning and thinking totally upside down, inside out. 
Because his religion, just like every other false religion in the history of the world, is all about people achieving a relationship to God, earning a relationship with God by some form of works, human achievement, ritual, ceremony, morality, whatever the categories are, it's earning your way to being right with God. This is the way for all religious systems except the way of King Jesus. This that Nicodemus is involved with at the current time is apostate Judaism. This was the entire theological perspective of Nicodemus. All of his convictions prior to this meeting with Jesus are all of his theology about God, about life, about the kingdom, about heaven were all centered around the idea that he had to do something, that he had to do things, that he had to be moral, that he had to follow all these endless rituals and routines and ceremonies from the Old Testament and all kinds of things that they had added to the Old Testament to achieve a right standing with God that would grant him entrance into God's presence eternally. That's where Nicodemus was. And so then Jesus drops a bomb on him. Initially, Nicodemus, what is required is something that you can't do. You have no part in what has to happen first. And what is interesting to think about is that most Christians today who would have somebody come to them to find out and ask questions about eternal life and having their sins forgiven and how to be right with God, most Christians today would not say, well, to start with, you need to understand you make no contribution initially to that reality. Whatever you have done or not done has no bearing on this. Any connection you might have to religion at all has no relationship to this, what I'm talking about. Any, any connection that you, you might think you have to morality plays no role in this. You're asking for something that has to happen to you that initially starts and comes from the sovereign power of God. Now, if you didn't listen to the first three messages of John 3, I explain all of that. Go back and listen to it. Most Christians would never go that direction in evangelizing. But would you notice here in this text? That's exactly where Jesus went first. There are also Christians who are afraid to say that to other Christians. Did you know that? 
that the salvation that they have already received was a work of God alone from heaven and that regeneration, that being born again, comes before faith. It precedes faith. You're born again by the work of God first, and then you exercise faith in that order. They think that that intrudes on people's independence and people's freedoms. But this text cannot be clearer in which order those two things come. So, so why would we say this to an unbeliever? Answer, to stop the unbeliever dead in his tracks if we're going to witness to him. Just with nowhere to go. And nothing to appeal to. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, Paul said. You would be better off trying to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle than to think that you can earn your salvation in any kind of way, shape, or form. And Nicodemus is totally floored by this. As I was when I first learned about this in the gospel as a lifelong Catholic, I was floored by this. And that's why twice in this opening section, Jesus uses that phrase, truly, truly. Because I'm telling you, Nicodemus, for the first time, what is true over against the lies that you have long believed all of your life. And remember, Jesus holds him responsible for not knowing these things. How can you be the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and not know this? That's what Jesus asked him. And as we covered in detail, he should have known this. Because the divine message of sovereign salvation is laid out with great clarity in the Old Testament. Those passages, remember that we looked at in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, make so very clear that the initial work in salvation is a sovereign work of God alone. That is laid out clearly in the Old Testament, clearly in the New Testament. So so here we have this self-condemned hypocrite with a guilty conscience. He's full of anxiety because he knows he's not right with God. He knows it down in his guts. He knows he's a phony and he's being honest about it. And now he hears he can't do anything about it when all he's ever known is do and don't do to be right with God. And then incredibly, Right behind this, in verses 11 to 21, we come to that second parallel track, divine sovereignty, nothing you can do to be born again, God has to do it. Then we come to the second parallel track, 
belief. That's our part. And again, if you weren't here, please check out, matter of fact, November 19th, if you go back and check the message for November 19th, that's where I laid out sovereignty and responsibility. If you haven't heard that, it would be very helpful for you to go back and listen to that. And in that message, we learned you can't do anything about it on the one hand, but on the other hand, you are responsible for your belief or for your unbelief. Listen, the text can't be clearer. You can't do anything to make yourself born again. That's God's business. You can't make any contribution to it, but, comma, you are required to believe what God has done to provide it as a gift of sovereign grace. And if you don't, you will be held accountable and you will be judged. Remember, don't try to reconcile those things in your little pea brain. You'll never do it in this life. That's the other message. Now, with all that in mind, I want to read verses 11 to 18, the context. We're only going to get through verse 15 today. So look again, John 3, starting in verse number 11, and we'll read through verse 18. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, as we work our way through this passage, we're gonna, we're gonna follow it with three categories, okay? We're only gonna get to two of those categories today. We'll get to the third one next time. Number one, the confrontation of unbelief. That's the opening couple of verses where Jesus confronts unbelief. And then number two, the commendation of belief. So we're going to hang on those two for today. And really, all of this passage, as we just read, is all about believing and not believing. So let's pick it up in verse 11. Jesus starts off again. You see it there. Truly, truly. That's the third time. And that's because he's saying things that are so alien and foreign to Nicodemus. And at the same time, he's speaking absolute 
truth into the error of Nicodemus. That's why he's using such strong, that's strong, truly, truly. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And here you need to understand that we. That's what we could call an editorial we, if you will. And that's something that's very common in languages all around the world. Like sometimes when you refer to yourself, you won't say I, you'll say we. Like for instance, if you're out on the street or at the Fall Fest, like we were, or was it Fall? Yeah, Fall Fest, and you're out there and, and and you're talking about your church and you say, well, we believe this at Providence Baptist Church, or we believe that, and you understand that's you, but there's truth beyond you represented by that, that that's also believed by others. And that's the way Jesus is using it here. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. That's what this means. It's broad-based, but at the same time, it's really a stunning statement. Because Jesus is telling you, I am telling you what I know. I am telling you what I know and what I, Jesus, have personally experienced. I'm not giving you secondhand information here. This is not like a prophet or a preacher or an apostle came to you to give you what he received from God. I am speaking to you of what I eternally know. Eternally backwards. And what I have eternally experienced as the God-man firsthand, as the second member of the Trinity. Remember that. This is the God-man who is speaking here. Notice how verse 11 ends. And you do not accept our testimony. Now, that's a massive statement. And the you, look there, is plural. You, Nicodemus, your friends, the Pharisees, all the leaders of Israel, your nation, and the world. Remember John 1, verses 10 through 11. Look at it on your screen. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. What an incredible statement. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now remember, remember, what we have here is really, in these verses, a synopsis of a conversation that probably lasted for hours into the night. I don't think we have every detail here, okay? And Nicodemus, the most gifted, skilled teacher in Israel, has more than met his match with the king that he's talking to. He has just had a conversation with the perfect teacher here, the most powerful, the most competent, the most convincing, the most brilliant, the most wise, the most clear, the most persuasive, voice that ever uttered a human word has been talking to Nicodemus 
the very son of the living God. And he has told him in general that salvation is not a matter of works. It is a matter to begin with of a divine miracle that God alone does independent of the sinner. And he is speaking to Nicodemus as one who has known this from all eternity. Look at John 8, verse 38. Jesus says, I speak the things which I have seen, look at that, with my father. And you do not accept my testimony. Now, in one sense, that is discouraging. But in another sense, it is encouraging. If this man, Nicodemus, who, who knew the scripture backwards and forwards, probably had large portions of the Old Testament committed to memory, if he would not receive the truth from the greatest, most skilled powerful, effective teacher who ever spoke words on this earth, then please do not be surprised when they don't believe you, when you share gospel truth, when you witness to others. I'm never surprised when they don't believe me. I am never surprised when people come here one time and never come back. It's happened many times. And I want you to know I'm never discouraged by that. I'm just here to speak the truth. Either you can handle it or you can't. Now for Nicodemus, this is such a major dramatic paradigm shift. It literally has turned all of his theology on its head. All he's ever known in his religion is works, legalism, righteousness by effort. And that's all he's ever known in everybody else who is religious as well. Because like I said, every other religion in the world is that too. And Jesus has just told him something that has just shattered him. He, he can't process this. Entering the kingdom is something that happens to me, which is something to which I make no initial contribution. And then the Lord turns and he deepens this confrontation by pointing out the ignorance of Nicodemus. And think about it. All Nicodemus had ever heard for his whole career had been Oh, Nicodemus, you're such a great teacher. Whispers in the hall as he's walking through where the Sanhedrin meets. There's Nicodemus. Look, here comes Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel. Everybody was in awe of Nicodemus. Surely he was filled with pride wherever he went. But the king doesn't treat him that way. Look at verse 12. <laughs> Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus. It's pointless for me to dig any deeper at this point 
into the profound realities of theology and the mind and the purposes of God because you can't even swallow this simple earthly analogy I've given you of physical birth. If you can't get past this clear, simple truth I've given to you, how can I possibly start talking to you about things like the Trinity? And the relationship of the Father to the Son and the entire realm of the glories that are attached to the realm of God and salvation. How can I possibly start talking to you about those things? You can't even get this simple analogy here. Can't get past it. You understand it, you just can't get past it. And the problem, of course, the primary problem, at least at this point, is unbelief. Nicodemus at this point is still unbelieving. And you know what unbelieving produces? Ignorance. If you want to hear ignorant representation of the Bible, listen to unbelievers speak about the Bible. The Bible says this. You've heard it. You've all heard it. Cleanliness is next to godliness. They misrepresent Scripture constantly. Sadly, a lot of times, especially in our day and age, believers misrepresent Scripture, right? You have to understand that, that, that unbelief locks people into ignorance. Look there at 1 Corinthians 2.14. We read it this morning. It says it better than anything can say it. But a natural man, that is a natural born sinner, that is a person who has not been born from above, who is not saved, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why, Paul? For they are foolishness to him. Look at this. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. So what is the remedy? The confrontation of unbelief leads us to the next point, the commendation of belief. And starting in verse 13, Jesus is going to make clear. Nicodemus, the only thing you can do is believe. Look, let's read 13 to 15 again. He says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that, look at that phrase, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So what can Nicodemus do? He is locked in unbelief. He is a natural man. Whether he was moral or or immoral makes absolutely no contribution to his entrance into the kingdom. None. Whether he was religious or irreligious makes no contribution whatsoever. All that a naturally born sinner can do is... Believe, as verse 15 makes very clear. And guess what? That's enough. That's enough. 
Now let's see how Jesus makes this point about commending belief. He starts it there in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven. Now, shouldn't that be obvious? I mean, we as human beings are locked into a space-time existence, right? I hope we all believe that. We don't have the ability to get out of our space-time box. There are some Looney Tunes out there who think that it's possible, but that's probably because they watch way too much time they spend watching these fantasy movies and going to conspiracy sites on the internet. Now, down through history, there have been some exceptions, right? To the rule. Lazarus, for example, he was graveyard dead. He went somewhere. And then he came back when Jesus called him back, remember? And then when Jesus died on the cross, that wild little statement that we get that some of the graves opened and the saints came back at that time. Remember that? Elijah went to heaven, but then he only, he came back at the transfiguration. So, I mean, it has happened, but it's very rare. The majority report is we do not go to heaven and come back. Okay. You wouldn't know that if you went to your local Christian bookstore and saw the books on the shelf about people who have been to heaven and they come back to life on the earth. I never cease to be amazed at the throngs of people who can possibly believe any of those books. Every one of them are filled with lies on every page. You get in some of those books, I saw God. Holy Spirit is a blue fog. As MacArthur said, and Jesus has a rainbow horse. And I mean, it just goes nuts. Insane. You want to read a good Christian book? Please come see me. I got a whole library full of them. Keep you away from all that. And all my books deal with truth and reality. Like Rush Limbaugh used to say, I live in realville. Okay. When you go to heaven, you stay there. And you will be glad that you do when you do. Can you really think of any reason in the world why you would want to come back here? No, you can't. But here in verse 13, we have a very important truth that we need to understand. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now listen to this clear truth. The only person who ever came down from heaven with the truth about salvation is Jesus. Every single ever religion in the history of the world and going forward until the very last day of time on earth either comes from this earth or from below in the demonic realm. And really, truly, ultimately, that's the place from which all other religions spawn. There's only one heavenly gospel. Only one heavenly message that came down from heaven 
And that's the message from Jesus. No person has gone to, uh, uh, to heaven and meditated on some type of astral plane and ascended to some higher level of consciousness. If they have gone to some astral plane and met with some ascended masters, those masters are demons. Okay. And whatever truth they received, is the truth of the demonic realm. So it doesn't matter who it is. L. Ron Hubbard, Mary Becker Eddy, Joseph Smith, nobody ever, not an angel, not a human, only Jesus has come from heaven with the truth. He's saying, I'm the only one who has come down from heaven and the message that I bring from heaven is that salvation is a work of God alone. It is a gift of God according to his will and all that you can do on your end is believe it. Believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. Jesus refers to this reality a number of times. Like, for example, look at John 6, 33. He refers to himself when he says, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world in John 6, 38. Again, he says, for I have come down from heaven. Again, in John 6, 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Does he need to say it anymore? There are other places where he repeats it. He's the only heavenly source with the only heavenly truth. And in this one conversation with Nicodemus that he brings down from heaven, these two divine twin parallel truths that 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 salvation on the one hand is a divine miracle that the new birth being born from above by grace is all true and it is to be received by the sinner believing it sola fide saving faith alone Notice Jesus refers to himself as the son of man here in verse 13 you know that's the title that he uses most for himself That's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7, by the way. He's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. He's God's prophet, priest, and king is who he is. Nicodemus is speaking with God in human flesh. The eternal son of God. And he is saying to Nicodemus, don't believe anything other than what I'm telling you. Because nobody has ever gone up to heaven and brought down the truth. That's why Paul, remember what Paul says, look at it there in Galatians 1.8. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed anathema in the old King James. Damned to hell is what that means. Believe any other gospel and you are cursed because it is either earthly or demonic or a combination of the two. You know this. False religions and their systems are the work of Satan who disguises himself as what? An angel of light. 
the gospel in all of its richness and all of its depth and all of its majesty with all of its eternal elements is the only message that has ever, will ever come down from out of heaven. And then next, verse 14. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, now there's a lot there, but first of all, that means you've got to elevate Christ above all others. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the only one that has come down out of heaven. He is the truth and the life, the light, the only way possible to be reconciled to a holy God. Elevate him, lift him up. No man comes to the Father but by him. Neither is there salvation in any other name save the name of Jesus Christ, sola Christus, Christ alone. And he's also saying here that he is the one that has to be lifted up. And in saying that, that is a reference to his crucifixion. Look again, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what is that about? Well, back in Numbers 21, we find the children of Israel yet again being punished for their disobedience. You might remember the story. God sent fiery serpents to bite the people, and they were bitten with toxic, deadly poison, very painful. Many of the people died, and of course, they were all horrified, and in a panic. If God just put that on his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, what do you think he'll put on America? What do you think he's putting on America right now? And the people cried out to God. And what did God do? In his compassion, which they didn't deserve because they had disobeyed him, and in his mercy, which they did not deserve because he disobeyed them, he told Moses, go get a pole and fashion a bronze serpent on that pole. And he said, anybody who looks up at that pole in Israel, anybody who looks up at that pole and that serpent on that pole will receive immediate healing from the snake bite. And of course... That is the illustration of the truth that in the same way, the children of Israel carrying in their bodies the deadly poison of the snake bite could be delivered from death by looking up at a bronze serpent in the same way sinners carrying the poison in their system of the arch serpent of all the ages and the sin that he perpetrated on the human race in the garden can be delivered from eternal death by looking up at the crucified Savior. That's the illustration here. What an analogy this is. And that's the first time, by the way, that we get a look at the fact that there's going to be a, a certain lifting up of Christ. 
We haven't heard up to this point in Scripture how Jesus is going to die. Now, we know from Psalm 22 some incredibly predicted things that were predicted centuries before Jesus came to this world, perfectly predicted things like his wounds and his thirst. Also, know we know from Zechariah that he will be pierced and from Isaiah that he will be beaten and pierced from our transgressions in the Psalms, pierced in his hands and his feet centuries before Roman crucifixion was ever invented. We, we know that he's going to die. I mean, we just studied his prediction of that back in John 2. But, but, but now all of a sudden we're getting another perspective here. That his death will be a death in which he is lifted up. And again, there, there's, there's more than just being lifted up in his death. It means that, that as you look to him, you give him all of your attention. You, you, you elevate him above all others as the preeminent one and you look to him in faith alone and to him alone and no others for salvation. The, the Jews who were bitten by the snakes were, were healed from the poison by just a look of faith. They had to believe when they were told this. Imagine the Jew, he's been bitten. The poison is coursing through his veins. He's walking through the people. He's on his way to death. I'm going to that pole. When I get to that pole, I'm going to look at it. Just like he said, and when I do, when I look at it, I'm believing that I'm going to be healed because that's what he said. And folks, That's all God asks of us. Look at his son. Lift him up above all others. The Jews who were bitten didn't have to do anything but that. There were no works. Moses didn't give them any rituals or ceremonies. There's no restitution. Just look. Look and have life. And don't you know that in the infinite, perfect wisdom of God, way back then, when this actual event happened, that it was in the plan of God that one day, way in the future, it would be the analogy of the simplicity of salvation by faith alone given in Scripture by Jesus Christ Himself for our benefit and for the benefit of the church for all time. There's no other book like this book, folks, because it's written by God. It's all planned out by God. Man couldn't come up with this. And the heart of the gospel message that Jesus brought down from heaven is found lastly for today in verse 15, which says, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's all we can do, folks. 
And the real shocker here is the word whoever. And if you want to know why that's such a shock to Nicodemus, you'll have to come back next time we're in John. And guess what? You don't know when we're going to be in John next time because neither do I. I'm planning for Colossians next week, but who knows what might happen this week. So that means you got to come every Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous recounting that God, that the Apostle John has given us of this conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus. And I'm praying that the word preached today has deepened our understanding of believing and faith and what it means, deepened our understanding of our King. Lord, that's that's what we always want to do when we come to Scripture. We want you to deepen. We can never exhaust in this life our understanding of the depths of Scripture, our understanding of the person and work of Christ, but we strive to do so, and we have striven to do so today. And so I pray, Father, your blessings upon the preaching of your word. If there are any here who have not come to saving faith in Christ, I pray that you would draw them and they would come talk to me about it. And Lord, again, we thank you for your day. What a wonderful Sunday as it always is with our church family to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that today everything that we have done from start to finish has been done in such a way as to bring you maximum glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.